Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King this morning, first Sunday of Advent. One of the great themes of Advent is that of waiting. I don't know about you, but I'm no fan of waiting. And it seems to me that many of our uh, technological developments have all been aimed at reduction of that one uh, word, waiting. Remember the good old days if you're a child of the 80s of uh, the Friday night date of going to TCBY and then over to Blockbuster Video uh, to scroll through the, the, the library, make your selection and get that little thing. It was called a VHS, a tape, and sticking it in the VCR player, fast forwarding. Just think of how cumbersome that all compares to now of click and on demand, you've got it. A lot of the technological developments that you and I enjoy are just aimed at reducing waiting. And thank God, I don't like to wait any more than, than you like to wait. But as much as uh, we dislike waiting, it is an inevitable part of life. You just can't get away from it. Regardless of how advanced we become, you will never eradicate the inconvenience of waiting. Some of you are in the college application process. And that, of course, involves a good amount of waiting. Some of you may be in the job search or job transition or be waiting in that area of life. And there is an inevitable, like, circumstances that are just beyond our control. Perhaps some of you are waiting for a health diagnosis. And again, Waiting, 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 it is an inevitable part of our earthly life. But not only is it inevitable, some sort of inconvenience that, boy, it would be great if we could just eradicate it, it's also an essential part of your Christian faith. That great uh, gospel hymn, Wait for the Lord, is a consistent theme throughout the, the Bible. Wait for the Lord, His day is near. Uh, and there are so many things beyond our control that we wait for the Lord. And your Christian faith requires a good amount of waiting. We say our prayers and we wait. We read the Bible and we wait for God to speak. Some of you may be waiting for the sermon to be over. Christianity, a part of your faith, is waiting. Therefore, we better get used to it. Because it's inevitable and because it's something inherent in our faith, we might as well get used to it. And better yet, if we can, we might as well get good at it. I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to say in the, the, the quality of our waiting to a large degree reveals the quality of our faith. So let's think about waiting. Hmm? And to do so, we're going to look at this a cast of characters, Zachariah and Elizabeth, although we'll spend most of the time focused on Zachariah. Now, Zechariah spent the large majority of his life waiting. We're beginning a new sermon series today entitled Characters of Christmas, and Zechariah and Elizabeth are the first characters that we're going to consider. We're going to do three things. We're simply first going to consider this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, they're a compelling couple, and I hope that we will be able to empathize and sympathize with them. So we're going to spend a little bit more time than usual in some cultural background. And then as Zachariah and Elizabeth spent a good amount of their life waiting, we are going to learn from them. We're going to learn both a positive from their example, something they did well or he did well. We're going to learn from that. And then something not so well, something we want to learn from in the negative as well. So a little bit of cultural background on Zechariah and Elizabeth. Who are these two people? Well, 
This is how the Gospel of Luke begins. We're introduced to this uh, older couple, probably around 60 years old, 70 years old, and we're told some very interesting things about them. You can turn with me in your pew Bible if you didn't bring one or uh, your service leaflet. Follow along with me in the story. We're in Luke chapter 1. There's some sermon notes you can follow as well. We're told that, first of all, he is a priest. He is a priest in a particular division, and that, of course, in that community would be a, a position of of great responsibility and a position of great amount of respect within the community. His wife is a daughter of Aaron. Now, Aaron is a significant a person of great significance in Israel's history. He was, if you think all the way back to Exodus, some 2,000 years ago from this moment uh, when the Exodus occurs. So uh, Moses and Aaron were brothers, and uh, Aaron had a significant role in the Exodus. So it's a little bit like saying this is the wife, especially, is from royalty. Second, uh, secondly, we're not just told about their background and their uh, occupations. We're told a little bit about their character and that they were both righteous before God. So there we have it. Here's a summary. They're great characters from a great family. They have great responsibility in the community. And up until this point, we are led to expect great things from this great couple. No reason to not expect just great things. The most viewed painting in the National Gallery is a series of four paintings by Thomas Cole. It's a series of paintings called The Voyage of Life. I believe I've referenced them here prior. Four paintings, each of the same man in different stages of his life. Infancy, young adulthood, old, uh, middle age, and then old age. In each painting, it's the same man in the same boat, journeying down the metaphorical river of life. But the scenery changes, becomes more ominous in the later stages of life. Uh, the condition of the boat changes. In infancy, it's near perfect. By adulthood, it's been all smashed to smithereens. The picture of young adulthood, which I think would apply to this couple, Zechariah, at least as the story begins, would be the, the picture of young adulthood. And in Thomas Cole's picture, uh, the man journeying down this river has the world as his oyster. Uh, the water is smooth, his boat is pristine, the, his boat is well provisioned. It seems like you can see his uh, destiny just right around the corner within easy reach. I think the same would be true for this young couple, a great couple from whom we would expect great things. But then, but then verse 7, with an with a economy of words, the author tells us that this great couple with great character, righteous before God, from great families, with great standing in the community, from whom we expect great things, encounter the harsh and the sad realities of life. Just go ahead and read verse 7. Not only did they encounter those sad realities personally, but they encountered the sad realities in professional life as well. We're given this interesting insight as to his service in the temple. This presenting incense before uh, God in the most holy place of the temple. Now, there's a lot of very interesting cultural background that we could explore about this um, 
what was going on here in verses 8 and following, but what we need to know for our time together was this responsibility of, of burning incense in the most holy places was a, a, uh, a great responsibility. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, the participant chosen by chance, chosen by casting of lots. And as it is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for 60 or 70 years, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity had passed by poor Zechariah. He's an old man by the time it comes around to him. By the time, finally, he catches a break. So just picture poor Zechariah. Poor Elizabeth, great people, great promise, great from whom we expect great things. And then, frustrated and disappointed personally, frustrated and disappointed professionally, as each year passes by, they become Zechariah and Elizabeth the not-so-young. Then Zechariah and Elizabeth the, the, the kind of old. And then finally Zechariah and Elizabeth the old. And that's when we encounter him. As a couple of great promise, uh, face great disappointment. What's ironic, and uh, I'm sure this irony was not lost on Zechariah, is that Zechariah's name, uh, many of these Hebrew and Jewish names have a, have a, a meaning associated with them. Zechariah's name means the one whom God remembers. But, you know, his life suggested that he was the one whom God forgot. And so that's Zechariah. And I wonder if we can, in some small way, relate. Maybe not to the, de the degree of the disappointment and the 60, 70 years of waiting that they endured. But... It, can we at least relate in part? Have we had personal expectations and personal hopes that have been disappointed and for which we wait and wait and wait? Professional expectations, professional hopes which have been disappointed and for which we wait and wait and wait and wait. I imagine each one of us can call a few things to mind. Well, Zechariah is an example of someone from whom we can learn. He has something to teach us. He offers us both a positive example to follow and a negative example to avoid. So let's jump to the positive. Let's look at the positive example to follow of how he waited with these disappointments. Look at verse 6 with me. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly before the Lord. What strikes me about this passage is the verb tense of walking blamelessly. As in, not they walked past tense until they encountered disappointments, but no, they, they walk and presently and currently continue to walk with a fair amount, a great amount of disappointment. They continue to walk blamelessly. 
What's that mean, walking blamelessly? Well, it means that they did the things that a good, faithful Jewish couple is supposed to do. It means they got out of bed every morning. They made their bed every morning. Maybe. I'm not sure about that part. But they, they attended to the small responsibilities. They went to church. They said their prayers. They read their scriptures. They were a good, faithful couple, even amidst their disappointment. And that's the first thing we have to learn. The first lesson that Zechariah teaches us is the importance of doing the small things right, even amidst our disappointments. I know that sounds basic, I know that sounds patronizing, but isn't it often true that disappointments can be, and waiting can be, an opportunity for us to get a little bit off track? I have a friend whose prescription for disappointment was, this was in college, they ate one pan of brownies. And then in one sitting, one entire pan of brownies and one romantic comedy. And that's how they dealt with their disappointment. Now, as far as vices go, that's pretty mild. But often, disappointment can lead to indulgence. We think, I deserve a break. And we have, you have your vices and I have my little vices. Hopefully, they're just that little. And oftentimes, disappointment will be an occasion to pick up something that, you know, we just shouldn't pick up. This couple didn't. They walked blamelessly. Further, oftentimes, waiting can be a season of idleness. Where we start become, when we become so concerned about what's out there in the future or waiting for this job or that job or that diagnosis that we forget to, the, the present matters right in front of us. Anxiety or, uh, disappointment leads to indulgence. Waiting can lead to idleness. But not for this couple. They walked blamelessly. They continued to walk blamelessly. I'm sure that they had their momentary lapses. We all do. I'm sure they had their equivalent of one pan of brownies. I'm sure they had their moments of idleness, of you know, days they just had to take off. But, friends, they were just that. They were moments. And after those moments were passed, you know, they got up and tended to those responsibilities that were right in front of them. They walked. Maybe those first steps were baby steps, but they were steps nonetheless. Rudyard Kipling has a great poem. In a poem, he tells his son the many attributes of maturity, and it ends with the following. It ends with, with this line. It's a poem, if. If you can fill the, de the desperate minute with 60 seconds of distance run, yours is the earth and all that is in it, and what's more, you will be a man, my son. If you can fill the desperate, the disappointed, the anxious, the anxiety-filled minute with 60 seconds of distance run. That's what Zechariah and Elizabeth did, and that's what they have to offer us by way of example. Perhaps this could be a word of correction and conviction for us. Perhaps we've let disappointment lead to indulgence. Perhaps we've let anxiety and waiting lead to idleness. This passage reminds us that our continued faithfulness, even in the small things, is important. It's not wasted, it's not lost. Verse 13, we're told that God sees and God hears the faithful prayers of Zechariah. And the same applies for you and me. So that is our first principle to learn. In their disappointment and in their waiting, they did what? They kept walking. The next thing we have to learn is a negative example. Let's continue in our story. After 60, 60 years of disappointment, poor Zechariah finally catches a break. 
His name comes up. He's chosen by lots for this prestigious honor. He goes into the temple, into the most holy of holy places, carrying incense and whatever else was part of that practice. And while he is there, lo and behold, the angel Gabriel shows up with a great announcement. Not only are you going to have a son, but he's going to be a great son. He's going to have a, a, a preeminent role in the entire nation. After all these years of faithful prayer and quiet faithfulness, finally, someone notices. But Zachariah's response is pretty underwhelming, isn't it? No, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. Verse 18, really? How can I know this for sure? His response is skeptical, and, and he's, he receives a little slap on the hand for it. What's going on? Well, here's the negative example. While Zechariah is a great example of perseverance while waiting, at some point, it all became just going through the motions for him. Yeah, he went to church or temple. Yes, he said his prayers. Yes, he read the scriptures, but it just became empty. He began praying as if no one was listening, reading the scriptures as if no one was speaking, going to church as if no one was really there. And so when the angel Gabriel showed up, Zechariah was so used to bad news or no news that he didn't respond, know how to respond to good news. And I just wonder if that's true for you and me. We get so much bad news. I wonder if we even have the capacity to respond to good news or to receive it. I mean, think about it. how often do you flip to your website or whatever source you get your news from and just anticipate something awful. We, we have become acclimated to disappointment. Not just, on a national, not, just, not just in the global news, but personally as well. I sure, I'm sure I'm not the only one that, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, I just will often assume bad news. One of you will call me or leave a voice message on the phone, and, and I will think oh heck, what's wrong? Or what did I do? For no reason. Maybe you have good news. And I know I'm not the only one who has this predilection because I've been visiting with some of you in your homes and making pastoral visits and every once in a while some of you will say to my invitations to stop by and pay a visit, some of you will say, well what did I do wrong? No, 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 nothing wrong. <laughs> Just stopping by, I want to pray and visit with you as part of what we do. Why? We're just... We're so used to bad news, so used to disappointment, I'm not sure we know how to respond to good news. We, like Zechariah, can become kind of old souls. I don't mean old souls like wise. I just mean old souls as of just kind of lacking expectation. This is the way it was. This is the way it is. That's the way it's going to be forever. Amen. We expect our worship to be uneventful, our prayers to go unheard. I don't mean to minimize the difficulty of waiting and the difficulty of disappointment. It's for good reason, or it's for reasonable reason, that Zechariah lost hope, 60 years of praying. I think I would lose hope too. It's not for our, without reason that many of us come to expect bad news. But friends, we just can't allow ourselves to be robbed of hope and robbed of expectation. 
Listen to this from the, the book of Lamentations. My soul is, this is from chapter 3, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It is good that I should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. While we need the perseverance to walk like Zechariah, we need the fresh breath of the Spirit of Christ to come into our lives, to make us new. Irenaeus was one of the early leaders of the church, writing in the year 300, 400, and he wrote this. He said that by, coming, by his coming, Christ brought with him all newness. Isn't that a great line? I'm not sure exactly what he means, but I really like it. By his coming, Christ brought into the world all newness. The Apostle Paul will pick up, a, or perhaps he was echoing the Apostle Paul who said that if anyone is in Christ, they are what? They're new. They're a new creation, forever youthful, forever hopeful. I wonder about you, me. Can we empathize with Zechariah? Sympathize with him. Do you find yourself going through the spiritual motions, praying as if no one was listening, reading the Bible as if no one was speaking, going to the church expecting not to meet him? Afflicted with a sad sort of melancholy of the soul. That sad sort of melancholy of the soul is captured by uh, Billy Collins on Turning Ten. Anybody? Oh, it's a great poem. You're going to love it. On Turning Ten by Billy Collins. The whole idea of it makes me feel sick, like I'm coming down with something worse than my stomach ache or worse from the, the headaches I get from reading in a bad light, a kind of measles of the spirit, a mumps of the psyche, a sort of disfiguration of the soul. You tell me it's far too early to be looking back on Turning Ten, but that is because you have forgotten the perfect simplicity of being one, the beautiful complexity of being two. But I can lie on my bed and remember every digit. At four, I was an Arabian wizard. I could make myself invisible by drinking a glass of milk in a certain way. At seven, I was a soldier. At nine, a prince. But now I'm mostly at my window, watching the late afternoon light. Back then, it never fell so solemnly against the side of my treehouse, and my bicycle never leaned against the garage as it does today. All the dark blue speed draining out of it. This is the beginning of sadness, I say to myself, as I walk through my universe in my sneakers. It's time to say goodbye to my imaginary friends, time to turn my first big number. It seemed... Only yesterday that I used to believe that there was nothing under my skin but light. And that's kind of how you and I can get. Kind of a ho-hum. Just a melancholy. Yeah, we do skin our knees. Yes, life does have its disappointments. And there are many, 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 many disappointments. But Jesus is forever young. And he will restore you. And he will revive you. As the prophet Isaiah said, that you will mount up on wings like eagles. You will run and you will not be faint. 
So receive Jesus Christ again, who is forever young and who makes all things new. And he will restore and he will revive and he will give you hope. Conclude with a quote from another great poet, Bob Dylan, who said this, May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others as others do for you. May you build a ladder to the sky, climb on every rung, and may you stay forever young. Amen.